John chapter 6, verses 25 to 59. And the thesis of the sermon, the theme of the sermon, is Christ the bread of life. Christ the bread of life. And there are three movements in the sermon. May I ask you to take your book and Bible and turn over to John chapter 6, and you'll see that the Jews make three statements, and these three statements lead to the three sections, the three stages of the sermon of Christ. John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou here? Now that question precipitates the first point in the sermon. And Jesus, in this first one, speaks on the nature of the true bread of life. Then they respond down in verse 41. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? And that leads to the second part of the sermon, which deals with the origin of the bread of life. I came down from heaven. And Jesus explains that in verses 43 to 51. And then he ends by saying in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. They picked up on that word eat, eat this bread. So they say in verse 40 to 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And that leads to the third part of the sermon, which is the appropriation of the true bread of life. Now, you have that in the outline, do you not? What is point one? The nature of the true bread of life. Is that the way it is? All right. The nature of the true bread of life. Number two, the origin of the true bread of life. Verses um, 41 to 51. And uh, then third, the um, personal appropriation of the true bread of life. Now, the key word to this third point is this word E-A-T. Look at verse 50. E-A-T, E, verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it, not die. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Verse 52. The Jews therefore stole among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 53. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I send you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and he adds something. Drink his blood. You have no life in you. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Verse 56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood. And verse 57. As the living Father sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is the key word, eat. Eating is the visible symbol of personal appropriation. And that's the key to this section, verses 52 to 59, and uh, the key statement that precipitates it in John chapter 651. Now let's look at John 651. This is the last statement that Jesus made in the second part of his discourse. He says in John 651, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give 
is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, John cha in John chapter 651, Jesus Christ underscores three supremely important doctrines. Matter of fact, this verse epitomizes in some respect the whole chapter. This verse I discovered uh, encompasses and embraces the key ideas in this whole chapter. There are three great doctrines that are enunciated in verse 51. I could preach the whole hour on these. I'm not going to, but I could. John 6, 51. He says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Three great doctrines. Number one, divine incarnation. Number two, substitutionary atonement. Number three, personal appropriation. Now let's look for a minute at those three. Because those precipitate the objection in the next verse and precipitate the answer of Jesus in verses 53 to 59. Number one is divine incarnation. Look at verse 51. I am living bread that came down from heaven. By that statement, and Jesus has made that about four or five times, by that statement, the Lord Jesus claimed to be pre-existent. Matter of fact, that statement's found in verse uh, 41, uh, verse, um, uh, verse 41 and 42. Jesus said in verse 38, For I came down from heaven. They picked up on that in verse 41 and said, The Jews then murmured him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Matter of fact, there are two claims in those two verses. One of them is uh, the claim to pre-existence. I came down from heaven. Now, you can see that. If Jesus claimed to come down from heaven, that meant that he existed before he came here. See, Jesus made that and supported that claim. Prince Mongol, you know, <laughs> Prince Mongol has made it. He hasn't supported it. Now, you've been reading the newspapers about Prince Mongol. And going up, the, I came down the Sunday evening, looked out here just as I went by Chickasaw Gardens, and there was a great balloon there, you know. We didn't stop. We didn't have time. I don't know whether he is on that balloon or not. But, you know, he claims to have come from another planet. And, uh, and some of the court trying to send him to another. See, but uh, he made that claim. Uh, no support to it. But Jesus made that claim, and he supported it. I came down from heaven, and then he said, you're going to see me go back to heaven, or his disciples did. Now, in the second next verse, what he, they said is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph. We know his father. I think by inference they were suggesting that he had, by inference, uh, mentioned something about the virgin birth. Because they raised the question of his father. We know his father. Which was to say, he claimed that he didn't have any human father, but we know his human father. So he makes a claim to a divine preexistence and also to be in virgin born. And they pick up this one on preexistence, and he says it about five times. 
I came down from heaven, and they object to that. There's the first claim in verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Divine incarnation, divine preexistence. Jesus Christ existed before he came to this earth. He did more than that. He did more than that. Are you listening? Because there are some people that knock on your doors and say that Jesus existed before he came to this earth and existed all through the Old Testament and existed way out yonder before the world was created. Way back yonder, God created Jesus as the first of the angels. He preexisted, but he's not eternal. Now, the ones that advocate that are the Jehovah's Witnesses. But Jesus Christ not only claimed preexistence, which he did here, I came down from heaven, he also claimed to be eternal. Before Abraham was, I am. There never was a time when Jesus was not. He's not only preexistence, he is eternal. And here's a claim, I came down from heaven, the bread that came down from heaven, a claim to divine incarnation and preexistence. Number two, the second great doctrine found in this verse is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, by that statement, I will give my flesh, in the American standards, I will give my flesh, comma, for the life of the world. In that statement, he's referring to his atoning death. He's not referring to the Mass. He's not referring to the Lord's Supper. This has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. By his flesh, he means his atoning death. That's indicated uh, by the fact that later on he speaks of his flesh and his blood. And he uses a statement which I will give for the life of the world. Without taking the time to look at other passages, that statement, I will give for the life of the world, is a standard statement that Jesus makes when he speaks of his atoning death. The Son of Man, for example, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give, to give his life a ransom for many. And he says that again and again, those kind of statements are found in the New Testament. They are references to the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. And he says here, I will give my uh, life, uh, give my flesh for the life, and the Greek preposition there, without being technical, is H-U-P-E-R, which in its context means substitution. I will give my flesh in the place of, for the sake of the world. And you notice, by the way, you notice, by the way, he says uh, uh, in verse 51, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the, what, elect for the world. Not the elect. He did give it for the elect. And he had especially in mind the elect when he died, no doubt. But his death is sufficient for all. And the death of Jesus is for all men. As the old saying has it, the death of Jesus is sufficient for all, but it's only efficient for those who believe. 
He gave his life, his flesh, for the life of the world. That's vicarious atonement. And then the third great doctrine that's taught in verse 51 is the doctrine of personal appropriation. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, eat of this bread, and by the term eat, he's referring to personal appropriation. Eating is the external and visible act. Eating is a visible symbol of the inward act of the soul appropriating the crucified Savior as the giver of life. Eating is the external external and visible act that symbolizes the internal and spiritual act of the soul appropriating Jesus as the Savior of sinners, the crucified, risen Christ. Now, those are the three great statements that Jesus made in verse 51. Let me say it once again. What's the first one? Divine incarnation. The bread come down from heaven. What's the second one? Vicarious atonement. Give my flesh for the life of the world. What's the third one? Personal appropriation. If it's going to help you, going to help you, then you're going to have to eat it. Now, the Jews objected to that third idea, this idea of eating, and that leads us into the third part of a sermon. Beginning at verse 52. Let's read these seven, eight verses. John 6, 52. The Jews therefore struggled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You know, uh, that's a trait of the Lord Jesus. When uh, somebody challenged Jesus, uh, and a challenge that was motivated by unbelief and skepticism, he always gave them something harder to believe. See? You die, he said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, he added something. Not only eat his flesh, but drink his blood. They said this man claims to come down from heaven. Jesus went on in, in, in verse 62, 63, he said, listen, not only are you going to, I'm asking you to believe that, but you're going to see, you're going to hear that the Son of Man has ascended back up to the place from whence he came. Well, unbelief was concerned. He always gave them something harder. That's why he spoke in parables. So he says here in verse 53, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's negative. Verse 54, he states the same truth positively. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise them up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats of this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, here's a, a great uh, passage on uh, what we call, what I call, the personal appropriation of Christ. 
You know, the truth that John Wesley gave to the world was the truth of personal regeneration. John Wesley lived in an age that's somewhat similar to ours. John Wesley lived in England in an age that was very orthodox. He lived in an age when churches dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. They were orthodox, but they were dead. John Wesley was reared in a Christian home. He went to Oxford and studied, as I mentioned last uh, Monday night. Went to Oxford and studied. Was ordained, uh, got up at um, 5 o'clock in the morning. Met with a group of boys at Oxford and studied the Bible for an hour. So methodical were they, they dubbed them Methodists. Went to the mission field. Spent two years in Georgia. When he came back on the way back, he discovered through the testimony of um, Mr. Moeller that he had never truly appropriated Christ. This thing, which Jesus is talking about tonight, goes to the heart of John Wesley's problem. And the problem that John Wesley had, and John Wesley was converted at down at Aldersgate, that little storefront church, which would be similar to a, something down on about 300 Poplar Avenue, the little storefront church, and he was regenerated, he was saved. And John Wesley began to preach. They wouldn't want him in the pulpit, so he went out to the graveyards and the cemeteries and uh, preached. And uh, that which wasn't much different than some churches, you know, cemeteries. <laughs> and then he went down to the coal mines and preached. When the men got off for an hour and came out of the mines, he preached to uh, eight or 10,000 of these miners. And the truth that John Wesley gave to the world was a truth of personal regeneration. You must be born again. You must eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. You must appropriate Christ. And do you know the problem that we face in America, and especially in the United States and down the South, is the very same problem. You know, you in the city of Memphis, or many cities in the South, which is the Bible Belt. You find people that go to church, they're going to church for years, are faithful in their attendance to the church, attend Sunday school class, may have served as ushers in the church, read their Bible perhaps, serve on the committees, probably taught a Sunday school class, as did the late Ed Reeves, but never truly converted to Christ, never personally, and they never personally ate Christ. They never personally appropriated Christ to their soul. See, that's a great tragedy. It's a tragedy in Jesus' day. And when Jesus was speaking, he was speaking to these Jews were orthodox, crossed all the T's, dotted the I's, were orthodox, but dead. And our civilization is marked by the same. And Jesus spoke this discourse to these Jews who had this problem. Personal appropriation of the crucified and risen Savior. Now they raise the objection in verse, um, in John chapter 6, verse 52. The Jews therefore scrolled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, what do they mean by that question? Well, they may have meant uh, the question that normally comes to our minds, the one that comes to the surface in our thinking, is they were saying, How can we eat the flesh of this man? We don't believe in cannibalism. How can we eat the flesh of this man? That may have been what they had in mind. 
what it may have been that they understood what Jesus was talking about. They understood that he was talking about his vicarious death, and they looked for a Messiah who was going to deliver them from Rome and not for a crucified Messiah, and they rejected it. See, I don't know whether they understood or not. If they didn't, they were wrestling with the idea of eating his body, his literal flesh. If they did, they were objecting to the idea of a crucified Messiah. To a Jew, a crucified Messiah was about the same as a round square. See? How could the Messiah be crucified? That's unthinkable. Unthinkable. And that was a great stumbling block to the Jews and to the disciples as well. And it may have been that to which they objected. Now, Jesus answers this in verses 53 to 58. Now, you got that outline in front of you? The answer of Jesus. You notice it? Let's look at the outline because I'm going to depart immediately therewith. And the sentence in a, in, a, in a preposition. The answer of Jesus, four things. A reaffirmation. He reaffirms the indispensableness of personal appropriation of Christ. Stated negatively in verse 53. Stated positively, verse 54. Second, a blessing. Verse 56. Third, an analogy. As the Father is the fountain of life for the Son, so the Son is the fountain of life for believers. And fourth, a contrast. Unlike your fathers who ate the manna and are dead, he that eats of this bread shall live forever. Now that's the outline. What I want to do is look at two things here. First, what does it mean to eat the body, to eat the flesh of Christ, and to drink the blood of Christ? What does that mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have life in you? What did Jesus mean by eating his flesh, drinking his blood? The second uh, thing I want to answer is, if I eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood, what blessings will accrue to me? What are the blessings that come to a person who eats the body and drink, uh, who eats the body, the flesh, and drinks the blood of Jesus. Well, look at those things. Now, the first one, the nature of eating and drinking. What does it mean to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? Now, you notice that stated negatively and positively. Verse 53, negatively. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Positively, verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And there are no exceptions. See, tonight you're either in verse 53 or you're in verse 54. He that has the Son, 1 John 5, 12, has life. And he that has not the Son has not life. Now, we sometimes say, uh, how are you today? You say, boy, I'm half dead, or I'm half alive. Well, technically, there's no such thing as half dead or half alive. Either you're dead or you're alive. Now, you know, you may be a little more vigorous or a little less vigorous, but you're either dead or you're alive. There's no in-between. There's no in-between here. Either I've eaten the flesh and drunk the blood of Jesus, 
and have life, or in order, I haven't eaten the flesh, drunk the blood of Jesus, and therefore I'm spiritually dead. Everybody is covered. Everybody in this room tonight fits into verse 53 or verse 54. Now look at the first one in verse 53. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say, do you accept, eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That is, to, to jump ahead of ourselves, that means unless you personally appropriate me, Jesus is saying, you have no life. Now that's, that was very startling. Very startling, no doubt, to the Jews. Matter of fact, it's startling to a lot of people who read these verses. And it was especially shocking to them because the Old Testament inveighed against drinking the blood whatsoever. So did the Council of Jerusalem when it issued that edict. And so he shocked them by this statement. They said, you know, what does he mean by eating his body? And Jesus knew that was prompted by skepticism and unbelief, so he made it even harder. He said, not only eat my body, you've got to drink my blood. Why? Why did Jesus make it harder? Because faith is taking God at his word, even though it appears impossible. And they were challenging his word, so he made it even more difficult. The Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly. You know, once in a while a guy comes up and says to me, maybe once every 10 years, you know, and challenges on the virgin birth. I can't believe that miracle. I say to him, why, uh, it's not one miracle, it's three. The miracle of the virgin birth, the miracle of the, uh, the preservation of the human nature of Jesus from the taint of original sin, but the greatest of all is the miracle of the hypostatic union. In the hour that the human nature of Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, in that hour, the second member of the Trinity joined his divine person to a human nature. So that for nine months, while Mary carried Jesus, Jesus carried Mary. See, and that's the greatest of all miracles. And Jesus was challenged here, so he had something. Not only have to eat his flesh, but drink his blood. Now, what does he mean by this? What is the meaning of eating the flesh and drinking the blood? Well, the meaning is essentially the idea of personal appropriation. Unless you personally appropriate me, you have no life in you. He doesn't mean to take this literally. There are two things that Jesus doesn't mean by this. He doesn't mean that we're going to take it literally. That I'm going to literally eat his body and drink his blood. Uh, he couldn't mean that, obviously, because the Jews were forbidden to drink blood. So Jesus couldn't be commanding them to do something which, as a Jew reared under the law, he was forbidden to do or to teach. He couldn't mean drink my literal blood. The Old Testament condemned that. He couldn't mean that. And he's not referring to the Lord's Supper here. Some people, you know, tend to feel that this is the background of the Lord's Supper. It is not. Whenever Paul mentions the Lord's Supper, he never refers to John 6. He refers to the end of Matthew and Luke, where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Now, the, 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 the same truths 
which lies back of this statement is the same truth which lies back of the Lord's Supper. But Jesus is not here instituting the Lord's Supper. What then is he talking about? What he's talking about is that eating and drinking are visible and external symbols of an inner and spiritual reality, the reality of appropriation. Uh, may I say that again? Well, I will anyway. Say it. We're to interpret this figuratively. Figuratively. You say, well, you're a premillennialist. I didn't think you interpreted things figuratively. Well, most of the time I don't. Except where it's obvious that it ought to be interpreted figuratively. Jesus said, uh, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, do we think of Jesus as a four-footed beast? Little lamb? No, that's a figure of speech. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the door. Do we think that Jesus is a door, a literal door? No, that's a figure of speech. It means I'm the entrance to God. And that I am the true vine. Is Jesus a literal vine? No, that's a figure of speech which speaks of truthfulness and communion. Now, here's a figure of speech, eating and drinking. And eating and drinking are visible and external symbols of an inner and spiritual reality. As I eat food, which I do occasionally, <laughs> as I eat food and get it inside of me, so I must personally embrace Christ. As I assimilate food and it gives me life, so I must assimilate by faith Jesus Christ. And by appropriating food, I live, so by appropriating Christ, I live. And eating and drinking are visible symbols of appropriating Jesus Christ to my soul. Now, eating and drinking are explained in John 6, 35. Let's turn to that. John chapter 6, 35. Jesus said in John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Now, eating satisfies hunger, and uh, um, drinking satisfies thirst. Uh, he says in verse 52, Except eat the flesh of the Son of Man to satisfy hunger, Drink his blood to satisfy thirst, you have no life in you. So he's speaking of the symbolic, the figurative in verse 53, and he's speaking of the actual in verse 35. Or to put it this way, the external act and the internal act. The external act is a symbol of the internal act. Now, what is the external act? I must do what? Eat his flesh, and I must do what? Drink his blood. Now, if I eat his flesh, I will no longer be hungry. That satisfies hunger. If I drink his blood, I will no longer thirst. That's verse John 6, 51, and also verse 53. So if I eat his flesh, that <clears throat> takes care of hunger. If I drink his blood, I drink the flesh of Christ, 
That's coming to Christ as Savior. I drink his blood. That's believing on Christ. Now, what is the difference between coming to Christ and believing on Christ? What is the difference? No difference. No difference. I don't think there's any difference. Coming to Christ is the same as believing on Christ. What did Jesus say? Uh, uh, he said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, If any man, uh, well, he said in John 7, 37, Every man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, that if we, uh, hold, everyone that uh, labors and is heavy laden comes to him, he will give him rest. I don't think there's any difference between coming and believing. What do these things speak of? All together they speak of one key idea, and that is personal appropriation. Personal appropriation to personally receive Christ as my Savior. To eat the flesh of Christ is the same as coming to Christ. To drink his blood is the same as believing on Jesus Christ. And if you do not eat his uh, flesh and drink his blood, then you have no life in you. Except you personally appropriate me by coming and believing, uh, you have no life. What is the point of this statement? The point is that it's not enough I hope you'll all listen to this, because this is a tragedy that I run across all the time when I go out to conferences, preach. It's a tragedy I met in teaching some of these classes. It's a tragedy, fortunately, that's rectified. I can look out on the audience and uh, count probably uh, um, more than two or three people who come to me and said that it wasn't until I came to this class or the Friday morning men's class that I understood, even though I'd been attending church for 20, 25 years, that I must personally receive Christ my sa as myself, as my Savior. I went to church, I read the Bible, but I never personally had received Christ as Savior. There's some here tonight who've told me that. And I know that that's a uh, tragedy uh, that's repeated countless numbers of times. That is why the majority of converts in the Billy Graham campaigns come from church members, unconverted church members. Orthodox, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, but never had a personal saving experience with Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ is talking about. It's not simply enough, it's not enough simply to believe doctrine or to be orthodox. We must embrace appropriate Christ. It's interesting that um, when the Bible speaks of faith without being technical, the Bible uses a normally a little prep, two, one of two prepositions. The word for faith is P-I-S-T-E. Um, it's like a V, pistuo, with a long O, that's faith, that's belief, and it used a preposition that would be uh, Either E-P-I, which means upon, or E-I-S, which means into. And uh, uh, I see a couple of fellows here who were at the meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago. I spoke over at um, the Baptist Student Union at Christian Mothers College, and I spoke on this very point. And normally, whenever the Bible uses the word faith, it's followed by a preposition. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him. Acts 16.31, they said, uh, Sirs, what must I do to be, said, uh, to be saved? And they said, Believe at P. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. At P. By at P, at P, believe on, uh, it indicates that I step off the sinking sands of my righteousness and step onto the solid rock, Christ Jesus. Or believe into Christ, apes. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave me the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe, and I think the word there is E-I-S, A's, into his name. So I get out of my garment of self-righteousness, and I get into Christ, into the garment of his perfect righteousness. What he shall call the trumpet sound, oh, then I shall in him be found, dressed in his righteousness law, faultless to stand before the throne. Faith is action, never static. It's believing upon Christ, believing into Christ, and or to turn it around, it's appropriating Christ, embracing him as my personal savior. And that's the point that he's making. Will you turn with me to Romans chapter 9, quickly? Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Here's the verse that we often quote when we're doing personal work. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart man believes in the righteous, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, I want you to look carefully at that and notice the difference. In verse 9, verse 9, he said, If thou shalt confess in thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe out the words in thy heart. Believe in thy heart that. Believe that. Believe that. See? That means believe truth. What do I believe? Believe that God raised him from the dead. Not that Jesus was raised, but that God raised him from the dead, which is, means a whole lot more than believing that Jesus was raised. Man can believe that Jesus was raised without believing that God raised him from the dead. What's the difference? When I believe that God raised him from the dead, I'm believing that God was eminently satisfied with what Jesus did with my sins on the cross. And so eminently satisfied was he that he raised Jesus from the dead. Or as Russell Bradley Jones said, the resurrection of Jesus was God's amen to Jesus, it is finished. And God was so perfectly satisfied with what Jesus did with your sins and mine that he raised him from the dead. Now, I believe that. See, that's what we call general faith. And general faith is resting in the sufficiency of the evidence. General faith is resting in F-A-C-T-S, facts, believing truth. Believe in thine heart that, 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 that. But look at verse 11. 
What is the word that follows verse 11, in, or believe in verse 11? Bottom, what is it saying? Believeth on him. See that word, Ron? There's a difference. That's faith in a person. One is faith, one is believing facts, the other is believing a person. Both are necessary to be saved. Saving faith rests on general faith. General faith is the resting of the mind in the sufficiency of the evidence. Personal faith, uh, saving faith, is the resting of the soul in the sufficiency of Christ. General faith is anchored to truth. Saving faith is anchored to a person. See? And both of them are here. Verse 9, believe in thine heart that God raised him. That, that's, that's general faith. That's believing the truth of the gospel. But saving faith includes believing on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 54. Verse 54, Jesus turns around and says it positively. John chapter 6, verse 53, he says it negatively. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now he says it positively. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and will I raise him up the last day. He adds two ideas in verse 54. One is that eternal life is a present possession. Not shall have, but has right now. And he adds the idea <clears throat> that eternal life will be completed by the resurrection. Now let's look at the second thing I want to call to which I want to call your attention tonight. And that is the blessings of personal appropriation. What are the blessings of personal appropriation? Now this is, uh, you know, you can ferret these out for yourself. I'm going to suggest them. They're four blessings that come from personal appropriation. See, the main subject here is personal appropriation. I must eat his flesh, drink his blood. What do those two speak of in one word? Turn the clock back. Personal appropriation. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood. I interpret those not literally, but figuratively. They are external symbols of an inner and spiritual reality. In two words, what is that spiritual reality of which these are symbols? What are they? Personal? Now, can I get you all to say that? Personal? Kind of weak. Once again, what is it? Personal? All right, I saw three of you didn't. Let's try it once again. What are those now? Personal? Appropriation. Again and again, six, seven times, he speaks of eating. Seven times. Eat, 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 eat. Said you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. What is eating his flesh, drinking his blood? Personal appropriation. Eating his flesh, coming to Christ. Drinking his blood, believing on Christ. Now, if I do that, what are the blessings 
that come to me from personal appropriation. Four of them. Very quickly, four of them. Number one, salvation from eternal death. Verse 50, John 6.50. Salvation from eternal death. John 6.50. This is the bread that cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. Now, obviously, he didn't mean physical death, did he? Because there have been a lot of Christians who have died physically. And you and I are going to die physically. The only request we make is don't do it in here. See? <laughs> but we, if the Lord doesn't come, we'll all die physically. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about salvation from eternal death. Though that's included. You know the Bible speaks of three kinds of death. Spiritual death, which is a separation of the soul from God. The key idea in death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Physical death takes place when the soul departs the body. Death is the termination of physical life affected by the separation of the soul from the body. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God, and eternal death is the eternal separation of the soul from God. Depart from the cursed into everlasting fire. Depart. Eternal separation. Now, the living bread has the answer to all three. Will you look here? When I trust the Lord Jesus, when I eat Christ, when I personally appropriate Christ, number one, I immediately receive spiritual life. He that has the Son hath life, immediately, becomes mine right now. Number two, even though I die, death is, is, is only a transition to a much more nobler state, to the presence of God. So the terror of death has been removed, physical death. Number three, I trust the Lord Jesus, then I will never experience eternal death. And the Lord is thinking, I think, primarily this one, salvation from eternal death. That's the first blessing. Number two blessing. The second blessing is, he gives me eternal life. That's John 6, 54. He gives me eternal life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has six years life. No, eternal. That's why I believe in the security of the believer. That's why I believe what's called perseverance of the saints. I don't believe, I believe in it, but I don't like the term. Once saved, always saved. That's a poor way, a sorry way to put it. That sounds like you can get saved and live like the devil. And that's simply not true. If I get saved and keep on living the same way, that's a pretty good demonstration that I was never saved in the first place. See? So, but once a man is saved, truly saved, then God is going to keep him secure. Because God doesn't give me six months' life or two years' life. What kind of life? Eternal. Well, end, see? Gives me eternal life. So he gives me, second blessing is, if I appropriate Christ, is the blessing of eternal life, which is qualitative as well as quantitative. It's quantitative. It never ends. But it's also qualitative because it's the life of God himself, the enjoyment of his fellowship, 
peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, it's qualitative. Third, third thing, third blessing of coming to Christ and eating Christ, appropriating Christ, is this, that affords, it affords or gives present and direct fellowship with the Lord. Appropriating Christ saves me from eternal death, one. Appropriating Christ gives me eternal life, two. Three, appropriating or eating Christ gives me present and direct fellowship with God. That's verse 56 and verse 57. Now look at it quickly. Verse 56, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. Now he's going to pick that up in John chapter 15. And so, and we're going to get there three years from now, so we won't take it up now, see? And then verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. Personal indwelling of Christ, and Jesus becomes the fountain of abundant life. And then fourth, Appropriating Christ gives to me resurrection life. John 6, 54, the last statement. Eating Christ, appropriating Christ gives me resurrection life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And second, I'll raise him up at the last day, resurrection life. Will the unbeliever be raised? Yes. Will he have resurrection life? No, no, he won't. He'll be raised, but only believers given resurrection life. So here are four blessings of appropriating Christ. What's the first one? If I appropriate Jesus, number one, I'm saved from eternal death. Number two, I have right now eternal life. Number three, I enjoy right now the personal fellowship with the Lord which I can share to him uh, the most intimate things that I wouldn't share with anybody else, even my wife, see, or perhaps a husband. Now, I don't have a husband. i got a wife, but yeah. see, I mean, if you were a wife, then you could share them with your husband. See, and there are things that you wouldn't share with anybody. They're too embarrassing. You know, too embarrassing, but you can share them with the Lord. You enjoy the personal, direct fellowship with God you can unburden your heart to the Lord, and he never holds it against you, and he never brings it up later on. See, we all have a tendency to do that. See, we say, you know, I'm not going to, ten years later after it happened, I'm not going to remind you what you did. See, right in the process we're doing it. He never does. I enjoy personal direct fellowship with the Lord, and for it, he gives me resurrection life. All right, now let's close out. By way of conclusion, let me state two things. First of all, in, in interpreting this passage, this great passage, and a very troublesome passage to many people, there are two things that I've got to avoid. Number one, don't interpret it literally. We don't want to think of eating Jesus' body literally and drinking his blood, literally, even in the baths. And number two, this passage has no reference to the Lord's Supper. Now, the same truth behind the Lord's Supper is behind this. But this passage is not 
of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It has no relationship to it. What he's speaking of, he's taking an external thing, a visible thing, an external and visible thing, eating, and using it to symbolize an internal and spiritual reality. As I eat bread, so my soul eats and feeds upon Christ. And with that, I didn't mention it. I'm going to, but now you, he uses both the aorist tense, eat, and the present tense, keep on eating. Which means that eating Christ is once for all to be saved, but daily to be sustained and built up. And in verse 56 and 57, the word eat is in the present tense. So I not only eat Christ once to be saved, not only do I embrace him once to be saved, I embrace him daily to be built up in the faith. And the Lord's Supper is not in connection here. The key idea is personal appropriation. Eating satisfies hunger. Coming to Christ satisfies hunger. So eating is the same as coming to Christ. Drinking, drinking satisfies thirst. Believing on Christ, John 6.35, satisfies thirst. So drinking the blood of Christ means believing on Jesus as the crucified, risen Savior. And eating and drinking are external and visible symbols that uh, figure, prefigure, figure the, the uh, appropriation of Christ. That takes place a lot of time. John 7, 37. Uh, that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus said, uh, Let him that is a thirst come unto me and drink. You know, faith has its analogies in the human frame. Especially three of them. The eye, the mouth, the hand. Isaiah, look unto me. All ye the ends of the earth be saved. Charles Haddon Spurgeon sitting up in the balcony in a primitive Methodist church. The preacher looked up at him and said, look unto me. All ye the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said, I just thought for the rest of the time he's preaching to me alone. And that night, I think he was about 18 years old, he came down and trusted Christ. The look of faith, going back to the brazen serpent. It has the, uh, um, the analogy of the hand. Let him as a thirst take the water of life. Faith is the hand of the heart that takes what God has to offer and appropriates it. And faith has its analogy in the mouth. As I feed upon food to give me life, so I feed upon Christ to give me life. And that, my friend, is what saves me. Personal appropriation of Christ. You remember when we were on John chapter 2, I spoke of four kinds of faith. You remember that? Stop the clock. You didn't. You remember that? All right. What were they? False faith, a faith that's rooted to a falsity. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, resting on his work. Secondly, a superficial faith that is interested and trusts only 
the miracles of Jesus and not his person, that's interested only in the spectacular. When the spectacular is gone, then that kind of faith evaporates. Third, a orthodox but dead faith. James 2, you believe that God is one? That's good. So does the devil. He has an orthodox but dead faith, see? And the third is a sa- and the fourth is a vital saving faith, which embraces two things. It embraces an ascent to the truth of the gospel. Believe that God raised him from the dead. And a, a saving faith includes a, an intellectual ascent to the truth of the gospel. That's indispensable. I can't truly trust Christ without it. I can't commit myself to something about which I entertain doubts. I must be convinced that Jesus is what he's claimed to be. And he did for me what he, the Bible claims him to have done for me. That he's God who died on the cross for my sins and waits to save me. That's an intellectual conviction of the truth of the gospel. But that, though indispensable, is not sufficient. There must also be that committal of myself to Christ. Or to turn it around, there must be that personal embracing of Christ. The Bible puts it both ways. The Bible puts it in terms of committing myself to Christ, casting myself upon Christ. The Puritans are accustomed to using the word recumbency, to lean with all my weight upon Jesus Christ, committing myself to Christ. Or it speaks, it turns it around and says that faith is laying hold of Christ, of eating Christ, of appropriating him as the bread of life. So there's both conviction and committal, or conviction and confidence. Conviction, not of sin, though that's involved. Conviction that the that Jesus is what the Bible says he is. Conviction of the truth. Intellectual assent. And secondly, confidence in a person. Confidence, wholehearted committal to Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. And that is eating Christ and drinking his blood. I want to ask you in closing, my friend, uh, as I ask you almost every Monday night, you say to me, why do you emphasize that? Now, listen real carefully, will you please? You say, why do you emphasize that every Monday night? Do you think we're a bunch of unregenerate people? No, no, that's not the reason. Why do you emphasize? Because that's what the Gospel of John emphasizes. What is the key word in the Gospel of John? Believe 98 times. The key word in the Gospel of John is this, this, this word and this idea of believing with my whole soul into and upon Jesus Christ. And the great danger in Christendom is the danger of having perfect conviction of the truth without having confidence in a person of being intellectually convinced of the facts and believing all the Bible 
and even memorizing scripture without personally committing myself to the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Have you done that? Have you done that? Father, seal to our hearts what we've studied tonight. Thank thee for this great chapter. Thank thee that when we understand what it means to eat the flesh of Christ and to drink his blood, that is to appropriate the crucified and risen Savior, that this then becomes something very simple. The Lord Jesus used something that a, even a child could understand. He didn't use something highly uh, mathematical, didn't use some highly sophisticated illustration. The Lord Jesus used something that we could all understand. Just as we eat food and drink water to sustain us and to give us life, so we must embrace Christ, appropriate Christ, receive him into our souls for him to give us life and to save us. Oh God, we pray that every one of us here tonight may be sure that our faith is a saving faith, that we have truly committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, and that we have truly embraced him as the Savior of sinners. We know, having done that, that he will save us, give us abundant life in this life, sustain us through this life, and receive us unto himself uh, when we die or when he comes. We thank thee for that, Lord. We pray that tomorrow as we go out, we get hold of somebody and share this good news. There are just countless thousands of people in Memphis and Shelby County who are good people and religious people, but they're lost. They go to church and read their Bibles and they study, and yet they've never been confronted with this issue. Lord, help us to learn how to confront people with this issue of whether or not they have really embraced the Lord Jesus as Savior. And Lord, we pray that thou give to us, to all of us here tonight, the great joy of leading somebody to personal faith in Christ. We thank thee, Lord, for what thou hast done for us here at the college in the past several months. Thank thee for restoring Mrs. Carter to health and strength. Thank thee for supplying our needs, even as thou didst promise. We confess the smallness of our faith, but acknowledge the greatness of thy treasury and bounty. And we thank thee for this. Make our request in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. <laughs>